Hello, and welcome to episode 70 of the Giants of the Faith podcast. My name is Robert Daniels, and I'm the host of this show. And this is part two of two of a look at the life of famed evangelist Billy Graham. In part one, we looked at Graham's early life through his first major evangelistic campaign in Los Angeles. And today, we'll look at the rest of his life. I feel like I should say that I'm not covering everything that Graham did in his life. He was a busy guy. And there are plenty of biographies out there in audiobook format or in regular book format that you're welcome to check out if you're interested in learning more about him. So we left off the last episode with Graham's first large successful campaign in Los Angeles in 1949. But before we continue, let's take a step back to 1948 when Graham was assembling his team that would go on to be the core of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Key players were Grady Wilson, Cliff Barrows, and Bev Shea. And yes, Bev was a man, full name George Beverly Shea. Graham wanted to build integrity into his team and his organization from the start. He'd seen many evangelists get brought down because of the moral failures that they had, and he was determined not to have the same thing happen to him. So one night, 1938, the team gathered at a hotel in Modesto, California, to hammer out concrete steps that they'd take to avoid any kind of controversy. And the guidelines that they came up with became known as the Modesto Manifesto, though it was never really a written document. There were provisions for the organization, things like only working with churches that do cooperative evangelism, relying on official crowd estimates to avoid overstating their success, and also guidelines for handling and distributing money, among other things. Now, the group made personal integrity part of the manifesto as well, and the most famous provision was centered around relationships with the opposite sex. Each man on the team was expected to avoid being alone with a woman that was not his wife. Graham committed to never meet with, share a meal with, or travel with a woman other than Ruth. And that would keep him from infidelity or even the appearance of anything inappropriate. And this was greatly respected by the public and his peers and even the media. And it played a part in Graham's decades-long appearances on the nation's most respected lists. Things have really changed since then. We need to only look at the way that today's media pilloried Mike Pence when it became widely known that he follows the same kind of practices, just to see how much the world has changed. Well, 1950 was a huge year for Graham. It kicked off, really, on December 31st, 1949, with a New Year's Eve meeting in Boston at the Park Street Church. Response was so great that the team stayed in Boston for two weeks. After Park Street, the event was moved to Mechanics Hall, and then ended with a huge service on Boston Common that was attended by about 50,000 people. In all, Graham preached to over 100,000 in Boston in those two weeks. In July of that year, Graham made his first visit to the White House. He had a 20-minute interview with President Truman, during which he shared the gospel of salvation with the president, and in a quite forward move, put his arm around Truman to pray with him. As Graham's time with Truman ended and the two stepped out of the Oval Office, the waiting press corps asked Graham and Truman to kneel on the grass and reenact the prayer for the photographers. Graham quickly obliged, but he later felt embarrassed at how he'd acted with the President of the United States, and he felt like he'd been a little too flippant about the whole thing. He later apologized to Truman, and he vowed that he'd not act like that again if given another opportunity with somebody of such stature. A Truman was the first of 12 presidents that Graham had the opportunity to meet with and witness to, and true to his vow, he handled himself in a much more somber way in the future. 
1949, Graham had been approached about hosting a radio program. He agreed, and in 1950, he incorporated the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association to organize and handle his radio broadcasts and to provide administration resources for his crusades, which were first called Crusades in Columbia, South Carolina. The first episode of his radio program, Hour of Decision, was broadcast from Atlanta on November 5, 1950. It ran until 2016 and reached people all over the world. Interestingly, at least to me, Hour of Decision was not an hour. It was only 30 minutes long. In 1952, Graham requested and was granted the opportunity to travel to Korea to spend Christmas with the American soldiers that were there fighting the Korean War. He spent quite a bit of time there, ultimately preaching 14 sermons to over 7,000 soldiers. Now up until this point in our narrative, all of Graham's crusades in the Jim Crow South were segregated. But in 1952, Graham had said publicly that there is no biblical basis for segregation, and he even called for Baptist colleges to admit black students. Nonetheless, his team followed the customs of segregation for whatever locale they were in. Now that changed on Easter Sunday, 1953. Graham had been invited to Chattanooga for a crusade and had even had the Warner Park Fieldhouse built for the occasion. He had declared that none of his crusades would be segregated again and he instructed the event stewards to take down the ropes that had been set up to separate blacks from whites. One of the stewards refused to do so and Graham was famously pictured taking the ropes down himself. From then on, Graham was a great advocate for racial harmony. He always did regret not being more vocal sooner, but at the time he was admired greatly by blacks for the public stances that he did take. 1954 brought the Billy Graham Crusades to an international audience. After spending the previous few years touring the United States, Graham took the show to London, England, and from March 1st through May 29th, he preached to crowds there. More than 2 million people attended his crusades. From London, Graham went on to hit major European cities like Amsterdam, Berlin, Paris, and more. Now, he returned to Europe in 1955, revisiting some of the same cities, but expanding his footprint even more. Graham said that if L.A. in 1949 had put them on the map in the U.S., London in 1954 did the same thing internationally. In 56, Graham launched the Christianity Today magazine. His aim was to provide a theologically conservative content that would bring evangelicals together. There's a lot to be said about what an evangelical is and what Graham's role was in bringing that term to the mainstream, but we're not going to really cover that today. We might be able to look at that in a future bonus episode where we'll look at fundamentalism, evangelicalism, and Billy Graham's role in whatever controversy and disagreement there was between those two groups. As I'm recording this, we're approaching Christmas 2023, and I really want to get one or two Christmas-related episodes out. So it might be a little while before we get that episode out, but be on the lookout for it. So back to Christianity Today, for most of its publication history, it's remained politically centrist, but that's changed in the last decade. From 2015 to 2022, every dollar that its employees made in political contributions have gone to Democrats. In 2020, the magazine called for the removal of Donald Trump from office as President of the United States. 
The magazine praises the decidedly unchristian Barbie movie and Taylor Swift as unifying forces in the United States in a positive way. Now that said, there are still plenty of theologically conservative pieces written and sharp-eyed listeners will have seen that CT has been a source for this podcast on several occasions. Now, despite Graham's desire to avoid controversy, he did step in it a few times. He was often seen as too ecumenical in his practices. For example, Graham never signed the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy that was produced by the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, which was headed by R.C. Sproul and other prominent conservative Christians. And he didn't publicly endorse it either, though he did privately, and he did privately give money to the organization. Graham believed that he should not break trust with organizations, Catholic, mainline liberal, or otherwise, that would not approve of his endorsement. So he was seen as too willing to bow to the opinions of these non-evangelical groups, non-conservative groups, and he was not willing enough to draw a line around biblical fidelity. Working with Catholics and other groups caused Graham much grief. Now this is actually a criticism that I agree with. It does little good for Graham to have preached the gospel to people and then to send them out to Catholic and mainline churches for discipleship. I agree with the criticism that Graham's organization was too focused on salvation decisions, with air quotes, and it could have done much more to steer folks to local Bible-believing churches. Now, I do say that knowing full well that the easiest job in the world is that of a critic. Now, another source of controversy came from remarks that Graham made in 1982 while he was touring the Soviet Union. He was there for six days, preaching and speaking at a disarmament conference. He made the public comment that he saw no evidence of religious persecution by the Soviet government and that religious freedom in the Soviet Union was greater than he had expected. Now, this is despite the fact that the Soviet government was militantly atheistic, had killed two million Jews in its history, had seized the property of many religious organizations, and had infiltrated and undermined the churches that it did allow to operate. Now, back home, Graham's statements were seen as anti-American and pandering to the Soviet government just so he could come back and do a full crusade later. Graham denied this, and he said that behind closed doors, he had pushed for societal change to Soviet officials. But this is just another example of Graham working behind the scenes and not taking a firm stand publicly. Throughout the 80s and 90s, Graham continued to run his crusades. He went all over the country and all over the world, and he had many accomplishments that we won't be able to list here. But a smattering of them includes converting George H.W. Bush with the gospel, his 1991 Buenos Aires crusade that reached 20 countries in South America and Central America via live broadcasts, his 1992 visit to North Korea, and then his 1992 Moscow crusade. His health began to fail in the second half of the 90s, In 95, just before a crusade in Toronto, Canada, Graham collapsed. He was 76 years old, and he publicly announced that his son Franklin would take over for him when he either died or became too ill to work. And Franklin Graham is still running his father's organization today. 
In 2000, his health prevented him from appearing at a conference of 10,000 evangelists that Graham had convened in Amsterdam. And in 2001, he was unable to attend George W. Bush's inauguration, though he did meet with George W. Bush several times. Graham's last crusade came in 2005 in New York City. It was his 417th, and it was a three-day event held in June in Flushing Meadows Park. And over the three days, it was attended by over 240,000 people. After retirement, Graham lived out the rest of his days, mostly quietly. His wife, Ruth, died in 2007, and then Billy died on February 21st, 2018 at 99 years old and he had done very much to make the name of Jesus famous throughout the world. His organization did and continues to spread his gospel message and to influence Christians throughout the U.S. and the rest of the world. Graham was definitely one of the most influential men of any stripe in the 20th century and he certainly qualifies as a giant of the faith. So thanks for listening. Until next time, God bless.